It's freezing in here. I don't know why, but uh, but it is. Tonight we're going to be in Jude, and we're going to spend our time in all 25 verses of the book of Jude. So let's pray, and then we'll dive right into it. Lord, we come to you now, and we are thankful for our time. We pray that you would guide it according to your will. I'm thankful for this book, and my prayer is that it would help us to be more faithful, um, and not just in general, but particularly that it would help us to be faithful during times where faithlessness is really quite rampant and even viewed with suspicion. So Lord, we are, uh, we're thankful for your word, and I pray that it would uh, work mightily among us tonight. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've gone through uh, these studies, here, here we are at Jude. We've, we've been going through books of the Bible. We spent a number of years in Genesis a number of years in Exodus, we got to Leviticus, no one wants to spend a number of years in Leviticus, we did it in five weeks, and then it kind of got a little shorter and shorter, now that we're in the pastoral epistles, we're doing a week at a time, and I just like to remind, if y'all haven't been here in a while, or if someone has, has missed some, I just want to remind you that our studies are coming from Mark Devers, uh, Old Testament, New Testament surveys that he does, his, his Old Testament survey is called Promises Made, and the New Testament is called Promises Kept. And that kind of gives the general direction for how we're studying. The reason I bring that up is because every now and again I'll say, uh, Dever said such and such. And I had someone come up last week and said, all right, got to ask, who is Deborah? And they have thought for weeks that I'm quoting some lady named Deborah. So Dever, Mark Dever, and, uh, and that, that is the uh, general outline that we work from. And then we just kind of shape it uh, depending on each one of our weeks. So... If you hear me say Dever, it's Dever, not Deborah. So um, I'm sure that's going to be very helpful to at least one of y'all. Um, we've covered in these pastoral epistles and these shorter letters, we've covered the subjects of faith, grace, humility, new life, the second coming, uh, leadership, hope, success, forgiveness, uh, sticking with the best, not looking for a backup plan to your Christianity, uh, faith that works. Uh, what to do when things get tough, how Christians are to move, uh, how Christians have certainty as we're considering these promises that are kept, and um, truth and love. And it brings us to Jude tonight, which is having faith in faithless times. That's the, the main theme tonight, having faith in faithless times. Interestingly, some of what we're going to be talking about tonight, we're also going to be talking about on Sunday I'm going to be praying about just the generational perspective that the church is supposed to have as we celebrate a baby dedication Sunday. We have 13 baby dedications over the next two Sundays, in case you're wondering. That is a lot of baby dedications, so we're going to have a sermon about that. Um, so the question I want to open up with tonight is this. What are some moral absolutes that exist within the church that are far less out, absolute outside of the church today. Marriage. What? Marriage. Marriage. One man, one woman. Moral absolutes that exist within the church that are, I mean, you have moral absolutism, which means there are actual truths that are absolute, and then you have moral relativism, which is truth is relative. Maybe it's what I say it is. Maybe for you it's what you say it is. Maybe everyone has different truth depending on their situation or their life. So marriage is a moral absolute that exists in the church that's not quite so absolute outside of the church. What else? Gender identity. Yes. In the same way that marriage is between one man and one woman. 
man and woman. Just take the marriage part out. Yeah. What else? Jesus is the only way to God. What else? Come on, y'all got the easy ones. Keep digging. Sin exists. Sin exists. Yes, there are some who would say sin does not exist because truth is not absolute. You can't hold me to something that's not absolute. So what's true for you may be that that seems like a sin, but for me it's not, so there is no sin. What else? We don't tolerate idolatry in the church. Idolatry is the worst of the worst. And idolatry is not a concern in a lot of areas outside of the church. What else? Sexual relationships outside of marriage. Yep. What else? Defining when life begins. What precedes defining when life begins? Another moral relativism outside of the church. Who created life? What else is affiliated with that? The sanctity of life. Who can end it? Yeah. What are some other moral absolutes in the church and relative outside? Yeah, individualism. Yeah, our culture, it was interesting. We were going through, as a staff, trying to define some ways that our children, you know, uh, spoiler alert, that for Sunday, some of the ways that our children are, um, are tossed to and fro by the wind and waves of doctrine and human cunning and deceitful schemes. And it was interesting. We had this long list, and Annie was like, you could sum that whole list up with identity, just who you are as, as a person on earth, who you are and what that represents and where you come from and what your identity is. And that fuels individualism in some circles and then it fuels a terrible view of yourself in other circles and um, seeing yourself as a part of a people, maybe um, less normal outside of the church. So we have lots of examples. Why is it this way? And the answer is not because we're so morally superior to all the pagans outside of the church. That's not the answer. So what is the answer? Why is it that way? God has revealed truth to some people and not to others. Which would mean that the source of truth is what? God. So the source of truth, we believe, is our creator. So um, there are, uh, I was reading, it was interesting, I was reading through Dever's book, and you know this was written in the late 90s. He took a whole year to preach through one book of the Bible, or I guess a little over a year, to preach through a book of the Bible each week. And that was what he did for a year. And the result was he also spent a lot of time writing these Old Testament, New Testament surveys. So a lot of his research is from the late, the mid to late 90s. And this one he pulled from the early 90s. He said a Gallup poll in 1991 suggested that 69% of people believe that there are very few moral absolutes. Very few. Right or wrong usually varies from situation to situation. So I thought, well, that's from 1991. 
surely Gallup polls and Barna research and all that, there's something a little more up to date that I can look for. And so that's 69% of people, just all people, the various walks of life, some church people, some not, just not a real specific, just 69% believe there are very few moral absolutes. In 2016, Barna president, Barna's a research group um, that is well-founded, President David Kinnaman contends that research indicates a new moral brand of morality has evolved in America. So we go from there are very few moral absolutes to there's a whole new brand of moral reality in America. Moral, moral reality, morality, or just, or just morality. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, he insists that Christianity has for the most part been removed as the culture's moral norm and replaced with a new moral code. And what they did is they compiled all this research from all of these statements that were made. So have you ever taken a poll where uh, it's just a statement? And you say, you know, true, mostly true, not really true, or really applies to me, or, or doesn't apply to me at all, or, ha- or haven't really thought about it very much. That's what they do on these polls. And so he said, if you take all of the information and you put it together, what you find is that there's this new moral code that has six major points that is the new moralism of American culture. And he says, these are the six tenets of the new moral code. Number one, the best way of finding yourself is by looking, what do y'all think? Within yourself, deep down inside. Number one, the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. 91% of non-believers stated that is true. Here's the kicker. 76% of active church people said it was true as well. 76%. Over three-fourths of those actively involved in a church in America think that the best way of finding yourself is by looking within yourself. So 91 versus 76%. The second tenet of the new moral code in America is that people should not criticize someone else's life choices. People should not criticize someone else's life choices. That is a major tenet. Um, Those outside of the church, 89% would say, yeah, you should not criticize anyone else's life choices. But for those who are in the church, 76% again say, I agree, you shouldn't criticize people's life choices. Number three, to be fulfilled in life you should pursue the things you desire most. Fulfillment will be found when you pursue what you desire the most. 86% outside of the church said, strongly agree. 72% in the church said, strongly agree. Number four, the highest goal of life is to enjoy it as much as possible. The highest goal in life. 84% outside of the church, 67% inside of the church. No mention of the glory of God being first and foremost in all things, and 67%. Thumbs up. Number five, people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 79% thumbs up outside of the church, 61% inside. I find it humorous, actually, on that one, because it's a pretty significant drop, almost 15%, because... Um, apparently church people still like to control people, right? Because the, the point is people can believe what they want as long as those beliefs don't affect others. 
Well, the same church people that say, look down deep inside, well, 15% of those would say, no, 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 they can't do that. They can't do that. So that's kind of funny. Number six, the last one. Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. 69% outside of the church, thumbs up. Anyone want to guess the number inside of the church? 40%. Almost half. Almost half. This, this poll was done less than 10 months ago, or finalized less than 10 months ago. Almost half of those who are actively involved in the Christian church in America agree that any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. Which brings us to the book of Jude. Having faith in faithless times. Jude is the brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus. And his short letter of only 25 verses addresses two major issues. And here's the two major issues that he addresses in here. The first one is characteristics of life without faith. Characteristics of life without faith. And the second is characteristics of life with faith. So characteristics of life without faith, verses 3 through 19 are really the focus. And rather than just reading through all of those at the same time, which wouldn't take very long, we could actually read the whole book in just a couple minutes out loud. And we'll get through most of it out loud in in snippets. But we're going to take a little chunk at a time. The characteristics of life without faith. The first one is living immorally. There's a direct connection here. Those who have life without faith, number one, the characteristic of that life is living immorally. Verse four says this. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What is being perverted in this verse and how? Grace. Grace is being perverted. How is it being perverted? License for sin. So how does that work? Explain that to me. You think it's easy to pervert some things, because some things are already kind of perverted in themselves, right? But grace. How does one pervert grace into sensuality? License to sin. How's that happen? Yeah, it's the same Gnosticism that crept in in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This picture of my flesh is separate from my spirit, I'm really forgiven, so what happens in the flesh, not a big deal. It's a disbelief or an unbelief in the, in the, the realities of Christ who took on flesh. And the result is, I can do what I want because I'm forgiven. Now, what scriptures might help us to say that that's not really the way you should view grace? Yeah, Romans, Paul. So if, if, if grace abounds whenever there is sin, shall we sin all the more so that grace abounds? By no means. A big, heck no. No, that is not the way it happens. By no means. That is a bad, uh, a bad conclusion. So here we see right at the beginning of the letter, certain people crept in unnoticed. Crept in unnoticed. What, what does that what does that? sound like in your head? Like, what, what does that make you feel? Yeah. They didn't, like Ben was talking about on Sunday, the false teachers weren't wearing a scowl and dark clothes and a hat reel down low. 
It, they crept in unnoticed. How were they unnoticed? Well, because they probably looked and sounded a lot like everybody else. Um, grace was perverted into sec, uh, sensuality. Look at verse, I'm going to read just a handful of different verses. Verse 8 says, Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 10 says, These people blaspheme all that they don't understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Verse 15, To execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And then 18 said, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now the first question I have, <clears throat> are, are they quiet or are they loud? Ultimately, you're going to hear what they think. That's why they're there. At first, they're qu- it was kind of a trick question. At first, they're quiet. They creep in unnoticed. But here, they're loud-mouthed boasters by the end, boasting about that, which they're making confident assertions, which Scripture says you make confident assertions about that, which you have no idea. So they're loud-mouthed boasters. It says they, they, these people who have crept into the church that Jude is writing to warn against and to warn of them, but also to warn what's going to happen to them, the judgment that's coming, we're going to get that, to that in a minute. He says those people show favoritism to gain advantage. How does that work? How might they show favoritism to gain advantage? How might anyone show favoritism to gain advantage? Tell people what they want to hear. Yeah, building their own following. Yes, favoritism. Yeah, it'd be like if someone came in that I thought could forward an agenda that I had that wasn't godly. It'd be like me calling them every Wednesday to make sure they were here and to tell them I love them and I've prayed for them and not calling anyone else. Or let's say they have to make $100,000 a year to get a phone call from the pastor weekly to let them know that they've been prayed for. You see, you see what I'm saying here? You can look real I mean, on the receiving end of the phone call, man, this guy really cares. But when you're a deceiver and you're a false teacher, that's the kind of things that they do uh, to gain an advantage. And why might they want to gain an advantage? What's the, what's the end game? What's the win? Why would they go through the trouble of that? Power? Why? Their own agenda. Yeah, which is not whose agenda? God's. So ultimately, this is Antichrist. This, I mean, we think of Antichrist as sort of a th- horned figure with smoke and forked tongue and tail and whatever. This is just, I mean, Scripture speaks of it more as like, oh, it's against Jesus? That's Antichrist. And so here, 
That's what we're seeing. They're loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. They're playing the field. They're being political. That's a very political thing to do, to show favoritism. Hey, let me take you to play golf or whatever. And by the way, here's some agenda items I have that are important to me. And I'm going to write off this whole thing because you and I are going to talk about it now. By the way, I'm going to cover the golf and any snacks you might want while we're here. Um, I think that's how it happens, I'm assuming. Never been in that situation. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, going back to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, truth and love. Well, these people move like that because they separate it. It's like, I don't want to say something that doesn't make someone feel good because that's what's loving. So that means truth is withheld. Really what happens is the agenda and gaining the advantage for the agenda is here because you're going to do anything you can to show favoritism to promote that, which means that truth is going to be down here because you're putting too high a priority on other things rather than truth. So you'll never say the hard things that people need to hear, like judgment's coming. Like, like that's not a real popular thing <laughs> in our culture. Like we're, Anyone who would say such a thing is, is equated often to the crazy person on the street corner who lost their mind and their job many years ago and all they can do is hold a sign that says judgment's coming because why else would anybody be so ridiculous? But that's the whole point of Jude's letter is that judgment is coming. So I have a question. Passions and instincts are what are spoken of by Jude here. These people are following their instincts. They're like animals. Um, how are passions and instincts generally viewed today outside of the church? Passions and instincts. Driving force. How so? Yes. If my heart is telling me what to do, who in the world are you to tell me that I should not follow my heart? Because we already know that I find myself by looking deep down inside. It's only natural. God loves me and wants me to be happy. What else? Passions and instincts outside of the body, outside of the church. Yes, no one's actually just a jerk. There are no jerks. They're just passionate. Yeah. Sorry I spit on you. I'm just passionate. Or, yeah, that too, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I read an article this week talking about how violent protest is now the most common form of saying, I don't like that. Generally, passions and instincts are viewed positively, and they're often used to justify actions, behaviors, and thoughts. Used to justify actions, behaviors, and thoughts. There's, um, I actually read a thing about, um, with homosexuality, trying to justify it by showing that that happens with animals. Like, sometimes that happens with animals. The point of this is that's what animals do. Animal instinct is not sufficient for human beings. Human beings created in the image of God are supposed to be at least a notch 
above animal instincts, at least. And so if you see something homosexual happen in nature between two animals, um, I'm avoiding saying what kinds of animals are in my head because then that gives a weird mental picture. Sorry about that. Um, but the, the point is, is that, that that's not a good excuse for you to think the same thing. What you're doing is you are taking your cognitive insight and your cognitive abilities and matching them to whatever animal is doing that, which is foolishness because you're created in the image of God. Jude is passionate about such things because here it's their instincts, it's their passions that they follow, and they'll not listen to any leadership. They'll not submit to any authority or plurality of counsel from friends, family, coworkers, whatever. They're going to do what they want, when they want, how they want. And that is the problem in the church here as Jude is writing this letter. The false teaching and faithlessness in the church that Jude is addressing is one that says, because of grace, I can do and live however I want and remain in the church. Does anyone in here have a friend that they grew up with that's not in church anymore because they live like that? Does anyone have examples where they've seen that? Because it's separate. Because I've got grace. If I do those things, it's okay. I grew up in a church. Five worship pastors in a row. The first one, who led all of our, all of our children's musicals, um, is now traveling with a gay quartet. Not as the only straight member. Uh, the second one went to jail because... Um, of an inappropriate uh, relationship with an underage uh, girl. The third one almost got shot because he uh, tried to kiss the associate pastor's wife in a, in a number of situations. Uh, the fourth one uh, is a male stripper now. A male stripper. Those are my worship pastors. So we're certainly thankful for what we have here at Crosspoint Fellowship. <laughs> But that was, uh, just, just keep it in the middle of the road, man. Just keep it in the middle of the road. The bar's real low. It's real low right now. But, but the, those were leaders in the church. Those were the guys for the course of a decade and a half, two decades, that would get up and lead the church in professing the greatness of God when their heart was so far from the words that were coming out of their mouth. Like it says in Ecclesiastes, let the words of our mouth not be far from our hearts. So the characteristics of life without faith, first is just living immorally. Why, why is there a moral living? Well, because likely there's no faith. That doesn't mean there can't be moral people um, who don't have faith. It's not to say that all, all non-Christians are monsters, but one normal characteristic is immorality to some degree. Maybe not outward um, in some people as much as it is inward. Um, the second thing is just denying the truth. Again, in verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny 
our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. When they deny him, they are denying what he says. Either Jesus is Lord, he's the Son of God, and what he says is true and you have to listen, or he's not. He's not the Son of God. And that's why so many of the false teachers said, well, he didn't really take on flesh. Or, well, it wasn't really the Son of God. Or, well, the Trinity is really this, but not this. Or there is no Trinity, he just takes different modes. All these early church heresies went around this because it affected how people had to live. It, it, would, it would have a, a sort of brass tacks impact on Monday, and they didn't like it. So denying the truth. Dever, not Deborah, Dever notes, impure lives are a product of faithlessness, of not having faith, and of denying truth. So it's easy to say that about those people way out there, all those pagans that don't even come to church. But what about here? Do you find that to be true in your own life? Impure lives are a product of faithlessness, of not having faith, and of denying the truth. Think about what sins you struggle with. Think about the kind of things you try to keep in the dark. The source of those things is not that your, your moral compass is just a little off. It's a matter of faithlessness in those areas. That's why people in the Bible could pray, I believe, help my unbelief. Because there are areas of unbelief that need attention. And ultimately, when there is hidden sin or outward sin or just unrepentant sin of any kind, be it inward-outward, the, the cause of that is that you are denying truth of some sort. And ultimately, you're not enjoying God above and beyond everything else. I saw a deal from Piper. Someone posted it, and it was like a short two-minute little snippet. But essentially, he just was preaching, and he kind of got emotional and said, the devil laughs when people try to just be more moral, and it has nothing to do with the connection of how much they treasure God. Like, if you're not savoring and enjoying and finding your satisfaction in God, all the good stuff you try to do, helping orphans, whatever, giving money to relief for the tornadoes, whatever it might be, that stuff is a joke, and Satan will welcome all of the moral help, all the goodness that you can give, and he'll laugh at it, because you're not ever getting to the heart of the issue of satisfaction in God. And so it's a matter of unbelief. It's a matter of denying truth. Look at verse 8. I'm going to read a large chunk here. 8 through 18. I'm going to warn you right now. This gets weird. It's just a weird section. And we've got to kind of slice it into some pieces. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams to follow the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. The glorious ones are the Christians. They're blaspheming them. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Anyone want to explain that? No? Yeah, so it's an issue of authority. And who's doing the rebuking or in what power you're doing the rebuking? Okay. Bill? I was just saying, it's also, I think it speaks to how we should respond to, let's say, blasphemy or yep. when we hear people, you know, cursing God's name and, you know, saying derogatory things about Christ and Christians and stuff. You know, natural instincts are very angry. Yeah. Harsh, uh, I would say, 
Yep. The Lord rebuke you. Yeah. There, there's a, I'm taking a class right now on Psalms, and there's some Psalms that are pretty hard. So we have these online live forums with the professors, and you get to ask whatever questions. And so, you know, some of these Psalms come up, and it's like, you know, in, in the Psalm, he scoffs at the scoffers, and he laughs at them in derision. And in other Psalms, it's, uh, Lord, I pray that you would smash the heads of their children into the rocks. And it's like, man, we don't hear a lot of sermons on that because it's kind of hard to figure how, what's the application because I don't think it's that. And, um, and it was interesting because the, the, uh, the professor, his name is James Hamilton, brilliant guy, he said, uh, he said well, you know, you're, you, when you state a psalm, you are entrusting whatever the situation is to the Lord. It's self-commit, you're committing to something. And then you're confessing that this is of the Lord. And so here, it's, you know, there's a quite the difference between Michael um, contending with the devil and Michael saying, I, am, I cannot believe, I am offended, I, can't, I will not stand for it. it. That's different than the Lord rebuke you. Because a lot of times we get into these arguments and it's like what God wants doesn't even make it into the equation. It doesn't even make it into the conversation. So here we see this is a thing that happened and the Lord rebuke you was what was said. Verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all. Listen to the, if, when you hear repeated words in scripture, that means pay attention to the repeated word. To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly and all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. It's a matter of godlessness. It's not just a matter of morality. The morality is, the, is sort of a symptom but the lack of morality is a symptom. The matter is godlessness. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters, boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. What seems to be the point if you kind of take all of that, all those examples, what would you say seems to be the point of this somewhat odd section in the middle of this letter? Why all those examples? What do those examples say? Yep. 
nothing anchoring them to truth. The result is destruction. Yes, yeah. They came in unnoticed. He's saying, this is who they are. These are the blasphemers. These are the ones who do this. These are the same who walked in the way of Cain. These are the same who were moving into Balaam's error. The same who were in Korah's rebellion. He's saying it's all the same people who are doing this. And he's wanting to make it obvious to these, uh, these Christians here who they are. What else? Hidden reefs. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Do you know where the most popular place is to look for shipwrecks? Reefs. Yeah. Because you don't see them, and like you said, you run into them. And Jude is saying, don't bump into them and get shipwrecked in your faith, because that is what they're there to do. They're hidden reefs. They're going to drag you down. He, um, all these judgments that were mentioned here, um, the judgment of Balaam, the judgment of Cain, the judgment of Korah, um, the... the uh, um, all of them that are mentioned there, previous judgments didn't serve as the proper warnings for the future impending judgments that were to happen. And so he's saying they did not, those who were doing that now did not see what happened when all this other judgment took place. Um, does anyone know who uh, Aldous Huxley is? Aldous Huxley? Or just Huxley, because the first name's hard to say. Brave New World, yeah. Has anyone read it? Sweet. Sweet. Oh, we get to get into the weeds now. We got 10 whole minutes. Um, yeah, he's a writer of Brave New World. And that was written in, I think it was the 30s. He died on the same day that JFK was assassinated. So he, he was like a really prolific, popular writer, but his death kind of got overshadowed by a, uh, a president's assassination. So um, he wrote Brave New World, and it's shocking some of the things he put in there um, that have already come to fruition. I think he wrote it, was it? 2057? I don't know. I think that was the. Is that right? It's close to that ish. Um, that was what he was setting it in, but a lot of it's already happened. He even pro, he prophesied. I, I want to use that word carefully. Um, he even spoke. Uh, wasn't helicopters one of them? One of the things that. It's like, really? Had he, how'd, you, how'd you guess up the helicopters? Um, and there was other things far more important than that, but that's the one that stuck out for me. Um, so here's a quote, though. Um, he said this in, in his later years, um, he was in an interview, and he's been really candid in this interview, and he said this, and so as we're talking about this faithlessness that, that, um, that is immoral and this faithlessness that denies truth, he is like a perfect example. He was an agnostic, which, what is an agnostic? Doesn't care whether there's God or not. How, do, how does the agnostic different from the atheist? God made it and then left. Spirit separate from physical, okay? So um, he said he was an agnostic that eventually was he was in the process of his life of making the transition to Eastern mysticism because it was more fulfilling to him. And he says as much, but he says this, and this this was like I was reading this. It was in Dever's notes, and I just it floored me just the way he said. He said, "For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation." This is, when you look at what you have heard on the news today, this statement in this interview is shocking. The philosophy of meaninglessness 
was essentially an instrument of liberation. So this whole meaninglessness conversation, we're going to use it as a tool to be liberated from what we want to be liberated from. And then he explains what he wants to be liberated from. He said, the liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We objected to the political and economic systems because it was unjust. So the things that he objects to and that all of his contemporaries object to and now all of his followers, the economic and political system because they didn't feel like it was just and the moral system because it was getting in the way of what they wanted to do sexually. He's being quite honest right now in the interview. And he says this, There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotic revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. Do you all hear that? That should floor you because you see it every day in the news right now. There was one admirably simple method of confuting anyone who had concern about our, our revolt against um, the, the political system and our revolt against the economic system and our revolt against the morals. One simple thing that would justify ourselves in our political and erotic revolt. He just calls it an erotic revolt. He's so honest. We could just deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. What does this quote reveal about denial of truth? Yeah. Look, you can't, don't use his reasoning on him. You can't use his reasoning on him. That's just not fair. I'll not tolerate your intolerance. Yeah. That's fine. Everything is meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. What, what does this reveal about the denial of truth? And a system that perpetuates such a denial. Yeah. The, the, is there a truth to be known? Because if there's a truth to be known, that means there's got to be some meaning, right? Well, if we just say there's, it's, all, it's meaningless, then you can't hold me to a truth because the truth would have to be there to establish that there was meaning, and if there's meaninglessness, there's no truth to establish it, so therefore I can have sex with whoever I want. That's how the argument goes. Yeah. Anyone want to describe that? Secular humanism is, is what it's really, yeah, exactly. What, okay, so what is existentialism? We're getting deep in the weeds here. Yeah. And then secular humanism, yeah, secular humanism is what? Has anyone ever heard of that? Y'all ever heard of that? What is that? There is no God, so all truths are hidden or whatever kind of yeah. thing. And uh, it puts the self yeah. center. Yeah, so the thing that the two have in common is here's God, and he's not first and foremost, so we're going to bring it down to 
the, the self, the human, the person, the site, whatever it might be, but it's not God. And so secular humanism is, is very much what, what this looks like. So the denial of truth here is, is um, quite indicative of faithlessness because that means you don't have faith in a God or in the Savior who he sent. So going that route, there is no moral living that you're going to feel you should be held to. And if you, does, has anyone have a conversation with people who don't believe that? Have you all ever talked about that? What, is, what do the conversations usually look like? My truth, yeah. Truth is relative, not absolute. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the easiest way to refute that argument is just to punch him in the nose, right? But you can't do that because your moral code says you can. That it would be effective if you weren't a Christian. Yeah. So the result of this faithlessness and opposition, the result that we see in this letter right here is, is barrenness and punishment. Now, when I say barrenness, I don't mean these immoral people couldn't have babies because obviously we, we live with their offspring. Um, <laughs> But the barrenness is this, this impotence and this, and again, I don't mean it in that sense. I mean it in fruitlessness. So um, look at, I mean, just 12 through 13, all the things there. Hidden reefs at your love feast. The love feasts were, that's talking about when the Christians gathered and they had the supper. Biblically, there's really no picture of having the supper without having a whole meal. And it was a meal reflecting on the love of Christ and the salvation that you have in Christ alone. And so those were the love feasts. Well, early church, what did they talk? What did they say? The lie that they brought with the false teachers was they said that the love feasts were Christian orgies. They're just going to pervert it and, and make accusations that are false and un, un, unestablished. Were uh, Christian orgies, and it had something to do with cannibalism because they were eating flesh and drinking blood. That's all. That's all we know. That's kind of the way that that was treated. So these love feasts, actually, Jude only knows them in the proper sense, and he says. These false teachers, these hidden reefs, are at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. They don't have a fear of the Lord. And he says they are shepherds feeding themselves. What's wrong with shepherds feeding themselves? That's not what a shepherd does. The shepherds make sure the sheep get food. Now, they eat. Don't take it too far. Like, shepherds should all die of starvation. Um, Shepherds are feeding themselves only. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. You don't even have the fruit of the water that comes from a cloud. And then just fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. It's like they're like the, the sea when you see all the foam and all that they're making, all that they're creating with all of that turmoil and turbulence is just shame, 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 shame. So what we see here is this barrenness. And then the other thing that we see is the result of faithlessness and opposition is punishment. In verses 5 through 7, it says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their upper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment of the great day. 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Again, each of these three examples should serve as significant warning and guarantee a future judgment. These are their punishments, and they were prophesied. The last part here is the characteristics of life with faith. It's kind of short, but it's really the main point of this letter. He warns them. He wants them to understand who these false teachers are. He wants them to understand the guaranteed judgment that will come because part of the concern is, man, some of these guys are flourishing. Some of these guys are, are really effectively using their favoritism to gain uh, a standing and a following to promote their agenda and gain advantage. But the real point of this is the characteristics of life with faith. Look at verses 3 through 4. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all. One characteristic of life with faith is contending for the faith. The word contend is where we get our, our word agonize, agonizomai, indicating strenuous and athletic activity. So what does that tell you about the way that you should contend for faith? It's work. It takes intentionality. There is no one at the Olympics who just, like, uh, I was eating burgers, and somehow I ran faster than everybody else. That, that's not how it happens. It takes intentionality. It takes hard work. It takes discipline. It takes an attentiveness. I mean, an attentiveness in a number of ways. I mean, the, the athlete is attentive to a number of things, just as the one who contends for the faith should be um, mindful of uh, how they're moving, mindful of teaching, mindful of hearing the preaching and teaching, like you've heard in the pulpit the last two weeks about the importance of that, and then mindful of those who they are around, mindful of the opportunities that God might be presenting to them, that they want to make the most of those opportunities, knowing that the days are evil, contending for the faith. Yes. takes work to understand that uh that, that's actually i think one of the ones on this list it, it goes next into if you go look at verse 20 it says but you beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the holy spirit keep yourselves in the love of god waiting for the mercy of our lord christ lord jesus christ that leads to eternal life we build one another up in faith this is the opposite of what the false teachers were doing right he's saying you guys are supposed to be building one another up those false teachers they divide the church through error and carnality. They were dividing the church by false doctrine, and they were dividing the church by inviting members of the church into carnal living, fleshliness. The third thing, so you contend for the faith, you build others up in the faith, and then just verse 20 is kind of an obvious one. The, um, you pray. You, you pray by the Spirit. Verse 20 also says you live obediently and not rebelliously. And then look what 22 and 23 says. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. 
you want to talk about taking time to understand people, understand situations, and make sure all the while you're understanding the word. I mean, this have mercy on those who doubt. This reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 5.8. You don't have to turn there, but some of us struggle with wanting to only use one tool in the toolbox. Does anyone struggle with that? When there's something going on and, well, people aren't understanding, or my kids aren't understanding. Time to get the hammer. Time to get the hammer out and, uh, and help them to, uh, to understand. And sometimes we feel like there's only one tool in the toolbox when it comes to the unbelief that someone is dealing with. And here, this picture of have mercy on those who doubt. It's not mock and ridicule or malign or make them feel stupid. It's this mercifulness, saving others by snatching them out of the fire. It's this picture almost of like, man, there are some who are just so steeped in it. You just got to grab hold of them and bring them back. And, and you got to understand what's going on here. At 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 14 is what it made me think of. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. When my children are doing something, this is the easiest example to go to, but when my children are doing something that is not right, or maybe it's disobedient, or maybe it's just not faithful and it's not good movement, I have to ask, am I dealing with a kid who's idle, faint-hearted, or weak? You have to discern that by listening. That's why we're quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger. But you have to sit and discern that. You do that with your children. You also do that with others, especially with non-believers. Am I dealing with someone who just needs a kick in the pants? Well, they're being idle. They need to be admonished. But you know what? Don't admonish the faint-hearted because they're faint-hearted. They don't need to be admonished. You don't need to take the hammer to that situation because the hammer is not the tool for the job. You encourage the faint-hearted. And then you just help the weak. Some people just need help. They just need your practical help. They need you to stop what you're doing and help them to do what they're not able to do on their own. And then finally, the non-negotiable, be patient with them all. So you're not, you're not allowed to, there's no, you're allowed to not show patience because it clearly says be patient with them all. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Um, show mercy, not selfishness. The conclusion is verses 24 and 25. It's a great way to end, considering what God's role is in all of our faithfulness. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. You can just hear Jude saying, I have to warn them about these false teachers. I have to encourage them. I have to help because they've crept in unnoticed. I have to write this letter and tell them what these false teachers will look like and smell like and sound like and what this faithlessness, how it will show itself in, in the, the immorality and how it will show itself in the denial of truth. I have to make this clear, but then I have to encourage them to make sure that they are praying and they are contending for the faith and they're building one another, up, one another up in love and they're living obediently and they're showing mercy. But if you stop there, you kind of miss the big picture and the main point of all of this is a gift from God. He ends by making sure it's really clear what God's role is in all of our faithfulness. He is our keeper. God is our 
presenter. He's the one who will present us as a beautiful bride. He is our Savior. All of our faith is a gift from God, and all of our faith is sustained by God. So as Jude writes this letter, he does not urge them to look down deep into themselves to figure out what they need to do with their current problem in the church. He writes to them saying, this is true and this is true, and you know how this is all going to work out? God's going to sustain you. God will present you blameless, and God has given you the gift of faith, and it is ultimately Jesus who is your Savior. You are not your own Savior, and rest assured, reminder for everybody, you're not that lost person's Savior. You're not the false teacher's Savior. There's one Savior, and that's who Jude ends the letter speaking about. Let's pray. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. That is reiterated every single time we open the word and consider what you have breathed out so that we would be equipped for the work you call us to. Lord, I pray for greater faithfulness. I pray that we would contend well for the faith. I pray that we would be more prayerful in the spirit. I pray that we would build one another up in love and in faith. I pray that we would live obediently and not rebelliously. And I pray that we would show great mercy being careful to know who we're dealing with and where they are and not being selfish in any of it. Thank you for the gift of faith and thank you for sustaining our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation next week, last one. Then I don't know what we're ever going to do on Wednesday nights anymore. <laughs>